Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, it's good to be back. Good to hear. I missed y'all. Uh, we've been gone a couple of weeks and appreciate the opportunity to flip on down to the beach and have some time with family. Um, today we continue in our series in 1 Samuel uh, on the life of the great man of God, David. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22 today, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there or follow along with us here on the screen. Let me give you just a little bit of background, a little bit of review of where we've been so far and where things are at in David's life at this point. Um, the last chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 21, we learned that David was on the run, right? He's on the lamb, he's running away from King Saul, who he has had fallings in and out with, and now ultimately, finally, Saul wants to kill David. And so he's on the run from Saul. Um, David then goes to the, a town called Nob, just a little way south of Jerusalem, and there is the tabernacle. And he goes into the tabernacle, and he meets with, I believe it's the high priest Ahimelech, and the priest uh, gives David some food, some provisions, and he also gives him the sword of Goliath. And then sends David on his way. Well, there was a guy that we learned in chapter 21 who overheard this conversation between Ahimelech and David. And his name was Doeg the Edomite. And so our story today kind of centers on Doeg the Edomite and what happened in the aftermath of that meeting between David and Ahimelech. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 22. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. We'll be reading verses 6 through 8, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Verses 6 through 8, again, this is picking up the story where Doeg the Edomite comes into the picture. Here we go, beginning at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So here's King Saul. He's standing in front of his political counselors, if you would, and he's giving them this speech. Okay, so let's kind of walk into these verses before it's, these verses. It says, um, just before that in verse 5, it says that then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold that is in this cave at Adullam where David has ended up. He says, don't remain there, but go, he says, into Judah. So he wants him to go back into the territory of King Saul. He wants David to go back into the land where Saul has people out looking for him. And while David's there, sure enough, some people find out that David's in that land. And so that news makes its way back to Saul. So Saul knows that David is in the land land of Judah. And again, he's thinking in his mind he's, that David's got some kind of conspiracy going on here, that David's trying to take his life. And so Saul gets all these political counselors together. He says to them at verse 6, so Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, that is that they're back in his land. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand and all of his servants gathered around him. Verse 7, and Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, people of Benjamin. So specifically, he's talking to his own tribesmen. He's talking to the people, the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, which Saul is from. And so Saul has taken these. He's grafted these leaders out of his own tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, because they're part of his own family. He figured, if I can't trust them, I can't trust anybody. And so he grafts them out of the tribe of Benjamin. He has them standing around, puts tremendous amount of responsibility in the hands of these leaders. And he says to them, The son of Jesse... That is David, 
Uh, will he give you fields and vineyards like I've done? Will he give you wealth like I've done? Will he give you land like I've done for you all? And so he says, will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Will he give you military position and might and prestige in the midst of all the people like I have done for you? Is David going to do that for you? No, you're from the tribe of Benjamin. You're my own people. I've done this for you. David's not going to do this for you. Verse 8, um, and so he says, and now what thanks do I get for all of my goodwill? You've conspired against me. I mean, even my own people have conspired against me. Well, how have we done that, Saul? He says, no one discloses to me. No one tells me that my son, my own son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with David that they become blood brothers, that they become friends. And y'all hide that from me. You're even, none of you is even sorry for me or discloses that information to me that my son has stirred up David against me. Again, this is all part of Saul's conspiracy that he thinks David's out there trying to take his life. That David's lying in wait as he is right now in the land of Judah, trying to come, come up with some plan to take, take me out. I mean, Saul feels betrayed. He feels betrayed by all these political leaders that he's put all this power and given all this wealth and given all this position to. And he feels like none of them has been straight with him. None of them even bothered to come and tell him that David and Jonathan were like these two covenant partners together now, that they had formed this bond together, that David's in the land. Nobody's, he feels like nobody doesn't have a friend anywhere. And so that there's one guy in the crowd who sees this unfold and who realizes, hey, look, there's an opportunity for me. Uh, there's an opportunity for me to have some career advancement. And it's this guy, Doeg, the Edomite. Verse 9, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. So he's standing, these guys are all standing off to the side. I saw David. He came to Nob, to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech met with David. Verse 10, and he inquired of the Lord for David. So Ahimelech, the priest, inquired of the Lord. What do you, God, what do you want David to do? What, where should David go right now? He inquired of the Lord on David's behalf. This high priest working in the tabernacle, supposedly on your side, Saul. And then he gave David provisions. He gave him food. And then he even gave him the sword of Goliath, perhaps to come and chop your head off with, Saul. So he's stirring all this up. Now Saul's already kind of over the edge, and Doeg's just pushing him right over the edge, right? And so what, what Doeg is doing is he's the chief goat boy. All right, He's the chief herdsman in Saul's vast flocks. Right? So there's all these herdsmen that are out there watching all the flocks of the king, providing food for the king, providing sacrifices for the tabernacle, and all these people are under his employ. And so Doeg is the chief supervisor of all of them, which lets us know that Doeg had some ambition, right? that Doeg wanted to move along in his career. I mean, if he had made it to the position of being the chief goat boy, then you know this guy's an ambitious guy. Um, Again, here he is willing to, uh, to tell Saul about Himelech for his own career advancement. Verse 11, so the king summoned Himelech the priest. I heard some stuff about you, Himelech. And he gathered all the priests uh, from the priest's house as well, plus the priests who were at Nob. So basically, Himelech and all of the priests who were serving at the tabernacle, he empties all of them out and brings them before King Saul. Verse 13, Ahimelech arrives. The king says to him, why have you conspired against me? you and the sons of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of the Lord for him. And Ahimelech responds very innocently, right? He responds very innocently. He doesn't know anything about some sort of a plot to take the king's life. There is no such plot. He says, verse 15, your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Yeah, David showed up. Yeah, I gave him provisions. He's a general in your army. He's your son-in-law. Why wouldn't I do that? 
I didn't know anything about some sort of a rift that was going on between the two of you. David showed up. He said he had a secret mission that he was on. We learned this back in chapter 21. And so, yeah, I gave him provision so he could go on, do his secret mission that he was, had going on. Doeg could corroborate Ahimelech's story at this point. He could say, you know what? I was standing there. I heard the conversation. David lied to Ahimelech, misrepresented himself, didn't tell him that the two of you had had a falling out that David's on the run. And the Ahimelech just helped him out because David had lied to him. Doeg could have said that. But he did. He kept his mouth shut. In fact, he went a little bit even further. Look at the next verse, verse 17. It says, And so the king said to the guard who was standing there, the king's heard all he needed to hear. And he says, Turn and kill the priests. But it says that the guards of the king wouldn't put their hand to strike down the priests of the Lord. They wouldn't do it. These, these guards that were standing there realized him like high priest. Got all these priests here with him. I'm not going to go you know, run a sword through a man of the cloth. Right? That'd be like going in and hacking down a whole bunch of nuns. Uh, and so the guards are like, I'm not having anything to do with that. However, King Saul turns to somebody who seems to be like he's on Saul's side, verse 18, and he says to him, to Doeg, well, you turn and you strike the priests. <clears throat> and on that day, it says, Doeg killed 85, think of the slaughter, 85 priests. But he didn't just stop there. He went, if the scripture tells us, he went from Saul's presence, where he just killed these 85 priests. He goes to the town of Nob, where these priests and all their wives and all their children are at, their families. And it says there that he put the infants to the sword. He put to both man and woman, child and infant to the sword. And this is one of the worst massacres recorded in Jewish history, not just in the Bible, but in Jewish history, by one Israelite to another Israelite. This is one of the worst massacres in the history of the nation of Israel, by, by the hand of an Israelite against their fellow countrymen. And Doeg did it, remember this, he did it because he wanted to move up in the world. He did it for the sake of his own career advancement. So he furthered a lie. David showed up. He, was, he misrepresented himself to Ahimelech, and Doeg didn't tell anything about that. Kept his mouth shut about that. And furthermore, he pinned Ahimelech as this traitor, as this tyranny type of a figure, and then went ahead and killed him and all the priests. Now, in Jewish rabbinic literature, it's interesting to learn uh, that in the Mishnah, in the Jewish rabbinic literature, it teaches about that all Jewish people go to heaven. Uh, that Therefore, because God had made this uh, promise to Abraham and that the promise was good for all of Abraham's descendants, that Abraham's in heaven, therefore all of his descendants are in heaven as well. And so that's what the Jewish people teach. You go to a rabbi today, you say, hey, who goes to heaven amongst the Jewish people? They say, well, all Jewish people go to heaven, except the Jewish people teach, except four Jewish people. There's four that they put an exception to. Ahab is one of those. King Ahab, Jezebel, that whole deal, they had the contest with Baal and, the, and, and Elijah. But you know who's at the top of the list amongst the Jewish people? They say, he's just too terrible. There's no way God would ever let that guy into heaven. It's this guy right here. Doeg, the Edomite, they say he's just too, too horrible, too heinous of a character, too, too terrible the things that he did. Um, God would never let this guy into heaven. He doesn't get to go into heaven. Now, you and I know that we don't get into heaven because we are descendants of Abraham. We get into heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. Paul said, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, that you will be saved. And so the way that we get to heaven is not by being a 
becoming Jewish, not by joining the nation of Israel, uh, not by wearing a yarmulke on our head. The way that we get to heaven is through the work that Jesus did on the cross, putting our faith and our trust in that and that alone. Religion ain't going to save you, friends. Recycling ain't going to save you. Nothing's going to save you except the blood of Jesus, that and that alone. Okay, well, that brings us kind of to the end of this story for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask that question. You haven't heard it for two weeks. I know y'all are excited about it. Unless Jonathan talked about it. I don't know if he talked about the question or not. But anyway, I'm assuming he did. Um, but in any case, uh, it's that question we ask you every week around here, the most important one, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I really appreciate that. Doeg, the Edomite, uh, he sounds like a guy who probably would be in hell. Um, but outside of that, I mean, what difference does any of this make to where I'm living and, and getting ready for the kids for school year and all that kind of stuff? Well, let's talk about that. You know, there are people in your workplace who, like Doeg the Edomite, are only interested in their own career advancement, right? And you're thinking, mm -hmm, mm, yeah, I know that guy in that office and that person. Yeah, there are people in your workplace who will climb over other people, who will misrepresent the truth, who will steal other people's ideas, who will cheat, who will do whatever they have to do in order to push their agenda, push themselves forward in the world. There are people in your family who will ruin family relationships over money and over grandma's jewelry. There are people and business competitors who will undercut you, people who will do anything to advance themselves. They'll step on anybody, cheat anybody. I knew a painter once who went over and did three weeks worth of work. The guy was there. He did the whole job. And at the end of the job, the guy refused to pay him. And he did a good job. He did not like he did a sorry job. He did a good job. And uh, the guy just refused to pay the painter. I mean, there are people who are just sorry like that in this world, who will do anything uh, if it'll help them out. Um, and so the question for us is, how do we deal with these dough eggs, right? How do we deal with these kind of people? And how do we handle do we, do we, as Christians, are we just supposed to just kind of take it and roll over? I mean, is that what God expects of us? How do we handle these dough eggs in our world? How do we handle that kind of a situation? Well, I got four suggestions for you for handling these kind of people in our lives. And these uh, suggestions come from the story of Queen Esther. Y'all may be familiar with the story of Queen Esther. I'll bring you up to speed here if you're not. Um, if you have your Bible, you can flip over to Esther real quick. Uh, suggestion number one that we learned from Esther on how to deal with dough eggs in our life, people who are only interested in their own career advancement, or climb over anybody, unscrupulous people, the number one thing we do, uh, suggestion is to pick your fights with them carefully, to pick your fights with them carefully. You know, a guy like Doeg, he knew that he was misrepresenting Ahimelech. He knew that he was lying about Ahimelech's story, his situation. And so Ahimelech's, I mean, Doeg's a smart guy, smart enough to become the chief goat boy, right, the chief herdsman, and uh, to advance himself to that, to that respect. And you figure he's unscrupulous about Ahimelech. He's probably unscrupulous about some of the people that he, you know, bested, that he climbed over to get to that position in the herd, amongst the herdsmen. Um, and because of that, um, knowing that he's in the wrong, he's already thought about his excuses. So if King Saul was to come and question him or question Doeg on this, like, man, this doesn't line up. He's telling me one thing, you're telling me something else. Doeg's already thought about what his, what his lines are going to be. He's already spun the story in his mind of what he's going to say and how he's going to answer certain interrogations that might take place. And so just the same, when you're dealing with somebody like this at work, they've already thought through because you know, it's not fair. You know that they're being dishonest, but if you were to go and report that person, if you were to go and confront that person, they've already thought through how, what excuses, what lies they're going to tell, how they're going to spin the story so that they can squeeze their way, wiggle their way out of that situation. 
which means that any attempt at a frontal assault going and confronting this person may not be the wisest thing to do. In the words of a farmer one time who said, you can go into a fight with a skunk and you can win, but is it worth it? I mean, that's the same kind of thing that we're dealing with here. A guy like Doeg, I mean, he's a skunk. He's just going to stink everything up. He's going to make a complete disaster of everything. Is it really worth confronting head-on a guy like this? Is that the right way to go into a fight with him? Esther chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that Haman was appointed as the new prime minister of the Persian Empire. Just a little bit of background about the story of Esther. Um, This guy named Haman becomes the prime minister of the Persian Empire, the big empire in that part of the world at that time. And... um, And there's a lady named Esther who becomes the queen of the Persian Empire, and she happens to be Jewish. Now, nobody knows this at the time. uh, She doesn't share that with anybody, doesn't share that with the king, doesn't share that with any of the people who have been uh, getting her ready for her wedding day or anything like that, didn't tell anybody. And she has an uncle named Mordecai, and Mordecai has raised her since she was a little child, and uh, she ends up as the queen of the Persian Empire. So you got Haman, who's the prime minister, you got Uncle Mordecai, who's a Jew, and you got Queen Esther, okay? Um, Chapter 3 and verse 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So this guy Haman is very upset because as the new prime minister of of Persia, he expects everybody in the empire to bow down and pay him homage. And Mordecai wouldn't do it because the scriptures teach, commandment number one is, you have no other gods before me. And so Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai, would not get on his knees. Queen Esther doesn't have to. She's, she's over the prime minister. But Mordecai wouldn't get down on his knees and pay homage to this guy Haman. So Haman's just infuriated by this fellow. Puts Mordecai on his radar. Hates him. Um, <clears throat> now, could Mordecai do a frontal assault of Haman? Could he come to him and explain to him about the first commandment, how God told him he's not supposed to put any other gods before him, this is why? And Haman, I don't think that you're a god, and there's no reason why I should have to get down on my knees before, him, before you know. That'd be like going into a fight with a skunk. Friends, if you have a doe egg in your office or in your neighborhood, trust me, they have already positioned themselves, they have already spun the story, answered the questions, answered the interrogation that may come, um, they've already thought all that, through, that thing, those things through. So a frontal assault with a person like that, not always the best way to handle that situation. So pick your fights with them carefully. Number two, suggestion number two, when you got a doe egg in your life, just remember that God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. The idea of sovereignty means that God is in control. That is that the world is not just out there running loose and that things are just happening at random, but that God is working out his plan through the ages to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. That's God's will, and he's accomplishing that um, in the world. God is sovereign. The Bible says that no matter how somebody, may dom- how dominant they may appear, how, no matter how much they may think that they're running the world or convinced that they're running the show, that they're not that God is actually in charge. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 23 says that God brings even princes of the world to nothing. Even people with a lot of political and positional authority and power says God even brings them to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted. Do they assume, do they assume power when God blows on them and they just wither away? So they get their position, they get their power, they think that they're running the show, and then the next thing you know, they're gone. And so that's the way it is with God. Uh, The tempest carries them off like stubble. The Bible says that these people with their power and their position come and go, but God remains, God is in control of all things. And no matter how much of a big shot they may think they are, 
no matter how much they may think that they're running the show, friends, the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. That is that God is in control of all things. Um, You say, but Gordon, does God really do this? Well, look at the rest of the story of Esther. Look at how it goes. Esther chapter 5, moving forward. Now, you remember back in chapter 3, it teaches us that um, Mordecai actually had a little moment of heroism um, that he found out about a plot to kill King Xerxes, and so the king of Persia. And he reports this to Esther, and Esther reports this to the king, and then they go and investigate it, and sure enough, this uh, plot was real, and those two guys end up having, uh, getting sent to the gallows themselves. And so uh, Mordecai gets written down in a book of deeds, a book of good deeds that the Persians keep. He gets written down in this book, his name does, and what he did um, some time back. So moving forward to chapter 5, um, it's chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Haman then said, even Queen Esther let no one come before even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. So what Haman's talking about here is this dinner, this banquet that Esther has prepared in honor of the king and the prime minister. So Haman has, is the honored guest along with the king, and it's just the two of them. So there's going to be three people there. So the queen, the king, and the prime minister, Haman. Haman feels like, man, I'm pretty special. If the queen would invite me to a meal, just me, nobody else. You sure you don't want any other royal court to come? No, just me. So Haman's feeling pretty good about himself. Like, wow, she really likes me. Um, I've gotten in good with the queen now. I mean, I got it made in the shade, right? And so uh, Haman's feeling really giddy about all of this. Well, then he turns to his wife and he says, yeah, but something's really bothering me. Verse 13. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai sitting out there at the king's gate. Now, Mordecai is sitting out there at the king's gate. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes because he had heard about a decree that Haman had put in place that all the Jewish people over the course of the next 30 days were on, a, on the 30th day were going to be killed. Uh, so in a month's time, all the Jewish people in the empire, um, and Mordecai is a Jew, are going to be exterminated. And this was Haman's plot, uh, Haman's way of getting rid of Mordecai and the Jewish problem that he was just going to exterminate all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And so Mordecai's sitting out there at the king's gate, and uh, Haman hates him uh, because Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so, um, and he knows that Mordecai's sitting out there at the king's gate, at the gate of the palace every day, wearing sackcloth and ashes, waiting for the, for the month to come to fruition when everybody dies. And it's just bugging him. And so he says, to his, says this to his wife. His wife says, verse 14, hey, look, build some gallows. Don't wait for a month. Build some gallows. 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet high. That's up there, right? 75 feet high. That's way up in the air. So everybody's going to be able to see him. Build some gallows for Mordecai and hang him on it in the morning. Don't wait till the month's out. Just go ahead and deal with the Mordecai problem, then the rest of the Jews you'll deal with at the end of the month. And so that's his plan. He's like, okay, that actually sounds pretty good. So he goes off to this meal, right, with uh, Esther, which he's the invited guest uh, at, or, or thinking about it. That's going to be the next night. And, um, and, and, and he much, feels much better about things. Um, so take a look at what happens next. It answers our question, is God in charge? Chapter 6 and verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. God had given him some five-hour energy drink, right? Some spiritual five-hour energy drink. The king couldn't sleep, so he's laying there, and he's, he's tossing and turning. And so he calls in some of his servants, it says there in verse 1, and he says, hey, look, give me that thick book about all the good deeds and the hero, hero, acts of heroism that people had done across our our empire and just read me some of those stories maybe that'll help me go to sleep right and so that's what they do verse two it was read to the king how mordecai so in the midst of them reading they come up on the story of mordecai 
And they read about the story of Mordecai, how Mordecai had reported, found out this plot to kill King Xerxes, and how uh, that was then reported to the queen, and then the, the plot was investigated, and then the plot was thwarted. And so it was read to the king how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's servants, and how they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, which is King Xerxes. And so verse 3, the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Have, he kind of wakes up out of, his, out of his slumber a little bit. He's starting to drift off sleep. Here's a story about Mordecai. Hey, have we done anything for this guy? Have we done anything to honor this guy? And so they, his servants respond, well, no, nothing. We haven't done anything to honor this guy. So he says, hey, we got anybody around here that um, can help uh, pull something together for us? They said, well, yeah, Haman's actually out there burning a little bit of midnight oil. He's working in his office. We can get him in here. So he calls Haman in. Haman comes in, stands before the king, and the king asks him this question. He says, verse 6, what should we do for the asking this, King Xerxes asking this question to Haman, what should we do for the man whom the king delights to honor? And then Haman immediately thinks to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I'm getting invited to this dinner tomorrow night, this special dinner with the queen, and I, now he's talking about he wants to honor somebody. Ah, man, this is, this is just turned out to be the best day ever. And so the king says, what should we do? And so Mordecai then begins to fantasize about everything that he would, everything he's ever wanted as far as like how he would want to be honored, how he'd want everybody to respect him, to look to him. And so this is what he comes up with. He says, verse 8, well, king, I mean, since you asked, right? Let me see. Hmm. Let's throw the royal robes on this guy. Let's go get the robes that you wear in front of all of your uh, royal court. Those purple ones with like the with the with the with the studded diamonds on it and, and the rubies on it. Let's get that one out. Let's break that out. Let's go put that on this guy. He says, "Let's get the crown that you wear." Wow, he's asking for a lot here. Let's find the crown that you wear in front of everyone. Let's put that on the head of this guy, right? And how about your horse? Verse nine. I've seen you. I've seen you riding in on this horse. It's a beautiful horse, King. I always kind of want to ride that horse. So how about we put this guy up on the horse and then have the guy, some high official in the land, lead the man on the horse through the town. Like let him, let that high official put the robes on this guy and then put the crown on this guy and then put him up on the horse and then lead that horse down the road through the streets of the town. Oh boy, King, this was just going to be the greatest thing ever. This is great since you asked. Verse 10, and so the king says, great idea great idea. That's terrific. Great. Take the robes and the horse and do all of that for Mordecai, the Jew. I guess y'all saw that coming, so it didn't have quite the effect. Anyhow, so, hey, so his, his mortal enemy, the guy that Haman hates, he's planning on hanging on these gallows in the morning. He now is going to have to put the royal robes on. And, and furthermore, he says, don't leave anything out. This will be great. And Haman ends up being the guy, the high official, who has to put the robes on Mordecai and put the crown on Mordecai and lead him down the road through the streets of the town, right? Oh, my word. I mean, his fantasy just becomes a nightmare. And now the thing is, um, you know, is God is sovereign? Is God in control? You bet he is. Oh, yeah. Friends, that doeg that you've got that thinks that they're running the world, that doeg that she thinks that she's running the world, she's not running the world. He's not running the world. Believe me, God is still running the universe. Suggestion number three. 
Never forget God's eternal law of sowing and reaping. Never forget God's eternal law of sowing and reaping. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 7 tells us that for whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. Now what that means is that nobody is going to get away with what they've done. It may look like that dough egg in your office is getting away with it, but as Yogi Berra has said, it ain't over until it's over. One day, we are all, at least in this, going to have to stand before God and give account of our lives. Nobody's going to get away with anything. When it's over, God's going to see to it that the eternal law of sowing and reaping applies to your dough egg, just like it applies to everyone else in the world. Um, ask Bernie Madoff. Remember Bernie Madoff? Thought he had stole hundreds of millions of dollars from investors, uh, perhaps in the billions. I don't remember, really remember the number, but it was, a, it was a tremendous amount of money he stole from people uh, working a scam. And uh, where's he at now? He's in the lockup. He's in the clink, right? That's where he's, he's with the, in the popo. Um, sooner or later, it's going to come back around to bite you. Did this happen for Haman? Oh boy, you bet it did. Haman has had a bad day, and his bad day is about ready to get a whole lot worse. Esther comes in for dinner later that night after Haman's been out walking a Mordecai up and down through the streets wearing all this special stuff. And then <clears throat> uh, at least he has dinner to look forward to with the queen and the king. And so he goes in to have this special dinner with the queen and with the king. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, Esther shares that, hey, king, I'm going to be dead in a month. And the king said, nobody lay a hand on you. You're my queen. Nobody's going to do that. And he said, who, who has an idea like that? Who would possibly do that? And she says, well, you see this guy sitting right here? He's the one who's going to do it. You see, he's, a, he's formed this edict that all the Jewish people in the empire will be dead. And I've never told anybody this, but king, I'm Jewish, which means I'm going to have to die as well. And so the king is incensed. He is over the moon angry. And you know, he storms out of the room, goes outside, needs to get a little bit of air. I mean, he's got his prime minister on the one hand, has his queen on the other hand, and he's got this almost impossible situation that he's facing. And so he's out there trying to, trying to think this thing through. And meanwhile, Haman, back in the, in the room, back in, at dinner, comes around to the queen and falls at her feet, right? And begins just to beg her, please don't, please, please, please don't tell the king to have me killed. Please, please don't, uh, don't let this thing go south for me any further than it already has. Please, I, I beg you. And so at that very moment, the king comes walking back in. And he sees Haman at her feet, kind of groping at her. And he thinks she's try he's trying to sexually assault his queen, right? Because he's mad because of what happened. And the king immediately orders Haman out to the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And before morning... Haman is the one hanging from those gallows, not Mordecai. Friend, what goes around comes around. And you know that dough egg that you got in your office? You don't need to lift one little finger, not one little finger. That person that's been driving you nuts at school, right, that you're not looking forward to have to go see at the start of the school year? Friends, you don't have to lift one little finger. God will take care of it because of the eternal law of the universe of sowing and reaping. You stay out of it. Fourth and finally, fourth principle for dealing with dough eggs is to learn the blessing that comes from turning people over to God. Learn the sweet release, friend. Learn the sweet release of letting those people go, of committing them to the hands of God. He may not act on things, 
as quickly as you want him to, but he'll do it much more thoroughly and much more precise. He loves to do this. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 15 says, The schemer makes a pit, digging it out, falls into the hole that he himself has made. Proverbs 26 and verse 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on the one who starts it rolling. God may, not do, again, do it as quickly as you want, but God will do it much more thoroughly. And my invitation to you is to experience the freedom and the blessing that comes from releasing those people to the hand of God. Friends, we waste an awful lot of emotional energy. We waste an awful lot of, of worry uh, that when those people's thoughts come, when that person comes into our mind or when we hear that person or get around that person, and it just has that feeling of, oh, I can't stand them. I really wish you know, they get what's coming to them. Don't do that to yourself. Set yourself free from that. God's going to take care of it. My, my job is just to live for God, not to worry about these people. All right, let's review. Number one, how do we deal with the dough eggs in our life? Don't be lured into fighting a skunk, friends. Don't, let that, don't take them head on. Number two, remember that God is running the universe. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. Number three, never forget that what people sow is what they will reap. That's the eternal law of the universe of sowing and reaping. And number four and finally, learn the joy of just turning people over to God to say to God, God, I'm not dealing with this person. They are yours to deal with. And I'm sure, friends, that many of us here have got some dough eggs in our life. They may be in our family, they may be in our workplace, they may be in our school. And boy, when we get around them or when we think about those people, it just wants to light that fire in us again. But friends, what the scriptures are calling us to do today is to give them and that situation over to the hands of God. He will do a way better job of dealing with it than you and I ever could. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for the fresh reminder that you are sovereign, that you are in control and uh, of this eternal law of the universe of sowing and reaping, Lord, that we don't have to exact revenge, that we don't have to turn things back on somebody else's head, but that, Lord, you, you, you're working that out and you've got it under control. So, Lord, when we see injustice happening in our family or in our world, yeah, Lord, there's times for us to step in. Uh, but God, when it's something personal, when it, those attacks become personal, Lord, may we just commend that situation, those people, over to your hands. Lord, we ask in this time of quiet, this time of communion, as we celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, so much was done to you that was wrong and unjust. And Lord, we don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your mercy. Yet, Lord, you showed us love, unconditional love. You showed us that you committed us and that situation into the hands of the Father. God, may we do the same today. Give us that freedom, that blessing that comes from committing these folks over to the hands of the Father. We pray this in Christ's holy name.